welcome to Nelda Live. Join your host, Nelda Sue Yor, as she talks to the artists, dreamers, storytellers, and pioneers to learn about their inspiration and the tools and techniques they use to make a difference. You too might be inspired, because as Nelda likes to say, sometimes all it takes is a spark. Here's Nelda. Welcome to Nelda Live. Today we have with us Keith Cunningham. Keith, it is so good to have you. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. Uh, I look forward to our time together. I would love for the audience first to understand this amazing journey you've been on. Uh, you've made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, <laughs> and made money again. Uh, and through that, I know that you have gained an immense amount of wisdom. So, so much so that I understand and know that you teach alongside Tony Robbins. That is amazing. And I would just like for the audience to get a snapshot of what that part of your journey was like. Could you tell us about that? So, I was giving an interview in Ireland um, eight or 10 years ago, and I was there to give a presentation to a couple thousand people. And the day before my presentation, the promoter of the event that I was speaking at asked me to go on a radio program and promote the event, and which I was more than happy to do. So, I, I went into the studio with the radio disc jockey and the disc jockey was on a break and there was a commercial playing and so we were able to talk and then when we finished talking, we were going to go live. And so during this commercial break, the disc jockey looks at me and says, I, I've read about you, I know about you, I've read your background, is there anything you don't want me to ask? And I said, yes, don't ask me how it feels to lose $100 million because I can tell you it feels horrible and it's a dumb question, so don't ask me about that. So then we came back from the break, and so the disc jockey says, okay, I'm sitting here with Keith Cunningham, the man who lost $100 million. Keith, how does it feel to lose $100 million? And of course, we're live on the air and I said, well, uh, let me tell you how I view this. And, and the way I view it is that life is like a university. And in life, just like a university, there are courses. And if you're in university and you take a course, there's a tuition. So I just took a course in the, in the university of life and the tuition was $100 million. And the question is not, how do I feel about having spent that much money? The question is, did I get my money's worth? Did I learn anything? And so the journey I've been on is a learning journey. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've, I have had uh, a lot of success. I, I made some, some incredibly stupid mistakes uh, lost a lot of money, have remade a lot of money. And, and once you know how to do it, it's not that hard. Uh, I, my favorite question asked people, Nelda, is 
And, and I ask this all over the world to, to every time I have an opportunity to teach. If, if I gave you the opportunity to unwind any three financial decisions you've ever made, how much money would you now have? And when I ask that question, people sit and think about it and they go, oh my gosh, if I could unwind just one of my decisions, I could have double, triple, quadruple the amount of money. And so to me, the lesson, to the journey that I've been on is a journey that, uh, that starts with the key is not to make it. The key is to make it and keep it. And the reality is the reason that most people don't have the business and financial success they'd like to have is not because of a lack of good ideas. The, the reason most people don't have the success they want or, or, or could have is because they've executed on too many bad ideas. And so the key is how do I avoid having bad ideas that I race out and execute on. The journey is, uh, you know, the mechanics of it is that I, I do have a business background. I am a business person. I continue to be in business and I have migrated so that some part of my life is dedicated to teaching and mentoring and and giving back. I, I've made a very important distinction, and the distinction is that there's a big difference between success and fulfillment. The success is getting what I want, and fulfillment is giving what I got. And so I'm very much in a fulfillment stage of my life now, and I'm very focused on I'm great with the success. I need to keep it, but I'm very focused on how can I do a better job of supporting some people around me so that they don't have to make the same dumb mistakes and pay the same dumb tax that I did. That is wonderful. I, I, I love the idea. I love that verbiage, success and the fulfillment stage. I, that That's wonderful. Can we talk about the sabbatical that you took? Because I love that story. I find it fascinating. Um, what did you do on that sabbatical and how did it affect you? So I think anybody that, that suffers a, a really big loss, and my loss was big in terms of money, but it was even – it was even bigger because I had my net worth and my self-worth entwined. I had my identity wrapped up in being a successful business person. And when I lost the money, I lost my identity. And, and at the same time, I lost my, my marriage and, and, Every part of my life was was in shambles, and I didn't know that I was going to take a sabbatical, but it turned out to be one. And I I, I felt like it. Maybe the best way to describe it is this: it's like being a basketball player, and it's halftime, and you you're trotting off the court to go to the locker room at halftime, and you look back at the scoreboard right as you're leaving the court 
and the scoreboard says it's 87 to three, the other guy is winning. And, and so here I am in the locker room and it's halftime and I keep asking myself the question, how am I going to win this game? Because I'm behind. I, I, I've, I've screwed up and I haven't played my cards right. And I, I've made a bunch of really poor decisions and probably I'm not the I, – I, I had done a poor job of creating the version of myself that I envisioned. And so it was an opportunity for me to rebuild. I, uh, this, the sabbatical uh, lasted uh, 18 months. I grew a ponytail. I got my ear pierced. I, I did a lot of therapy. I, I, I studied A Course in Miracles. I studied the world's religions. Um, and I, the whole thing was, was disengaging from business and reengaging with Keith. You know, who do I want to be? What do I want to what, how, what, what do I want to create here? Not what's my legacy, but what do I want to create? Uh, and and a, a very, very important person in my life that was a guide for me through that process uh, said to me one time, he said, Keith, you're asking yourself the wrong question. And I said, I don't know what that means. He said, you keep asking yourself the question, how am I going to win? And you need to change the question to how am I going to play? How am I going to play the second half? And once I knew that question, I was able to, to put a, a, a bow on some of the work that I had done to rebuild me. Uh, re-enter the business world. I knew I wanted to have success, and that includes financial success. And so I was able to rebuild and restart and, and in the process, design a life and a Keith that I would be proud of. And I'm not sure that had the whole loss and sabbatical not happened, I am fairly confident that the person I was on track to become would not have been someone I would have been proud of. I think one of the most powerful things I've ever heard, uh, Nelda, and I still think about this every single day, this same guide that was supporting me in my sabbatical years later uh, said, Keith, hell on earth would be to meet the man you could have been. And, and when I heard that, it, 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 it resonated with me to my DNA. I, 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 for some reason, that idea of, of meeting the man I could have been scared me to death. And I, I simply made a decision that what I want to do and how I want to do my life is so that I could meet the man I could have been and I could look that guy in the eyeball and say, I know you. I know you because I am you. And so that's been a, a driver that would not have been there had I not had the opportunity to take a, to lose a hundred million dollars in a, a relationship and, 
and all my friends and had an opportunity to start over. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Those moments in life that are the best thing that ever happened to us are usually brought brought forth through pain. I, I, I resonate with you on that. We'll have to sit down and have coffee sometime. <laughs> so I had somebody I had somebody tell me one time, and I think it's true, you'll have good things that happen to you and bad things that happen to you. You just won't know which is which until years later. You know, it's really, really true, isn't it? Uh, growth. Uh, I'd like for the audience to really um, know your amazing amount of knowledge in finance, business, and life. So one of the things I thought was really interesting was this idea of financial independence and whether or not that is a goal and the belief I think that you have that it's a myth. I, I think financial freedom is a myth. I think financial independence is absolutely possible. Ah. Um, what, what dictates financial independence uh, would be that you have enough money to cover the lifestyle that you envision. I think what causes people angst is that a lot of times what they envision for their lifestyle is beyond what they're able to accumulate in the way of capital or income. And it's more of a lifestyle question than it is a capital question. Years and years ago, I read, and I think it's true, if the world were a village of a thousand people, there's 600 people that are illiterate. If the world were a village of a thousand people, 600 are illiterate, 500 went to bed hungry last night, Mm. 700 live in a shanty town, which means no running water or central sewage. And if you make more than 30,000 a year, U.S., you're in the top one-tenth of 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so I'm in favor of financial independence, and I'm in favor of, of accumulating you know, the, 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 the capital that would allow that. But I think freedom is probably not the uh, that one is a little that one is a little harder for me to swallow because freedom is a state of mind mm. liberty is a state of environment and and so a lot of times people i think wind up using words that that don't support them look you can be financially independent on a thousand a month and you can be financially in trouble on a hundred thousand a month and so it's not the amount of money, it's the lifestyle that you've attached to it. And, and I'm not encouraging anybody to lower their lifestyle. I'm just saying, let's be realistic with what we're trying to achieve. And to me, it's not freedom. Independence is probably a, a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, that way I, I'm self-sufficient. I've got, but that generally requires 
years of effort as opposed to something that happens overnight. And I think one of the one of the primary saboteurs of financial independence is people's unwillingness to put in the hours or put in the work or or have the discipline that it takes in order to create that independence. I'll give you I'll give you a thought. I think it's virtually impossible to simultaneously create lifestyle and wealth. Those two tend to be at the creation stage. They tend to be mutually exclusive. So either you're going to pursue lifestyle at the expense of wealth, or you're going to pursue wealth at the to the uh, 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 and exclude or or minimize lifestyle. But it, it's very difficult to pursue both simultaneously when you're starting. Now, once you have wealth, lifestyle it becomes much more comfortable. But my experience is most people are unwilling to sacrifice in the short term in order to have the financial independence that they say they want. Hmm. Okay, you got me thinking. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's the way I think about it. <laughs> no, that's great. It's great. So another one of your powerful ideas, I just want to be sure we talk about, is your idea of thinking time. Um, I'd like for you to share your ideas on thinking and how important it is. So I'm probably going to say something that will be uh, a little controversial, but, but just stay with it long enough to hear it out. My experience is that money and investing and business is an intellectual sport. Money and investing and business typically do not respond well to emotions. Uh, I look back on some of my biggest financial mistakes and I've got some doozies and at the root of every one of them is one of three things. Either at the time of the investment, there was excessive optimism, or at the time of investment, there was unexamined assumptions, mm -hmm. or at the time of investment, there was ignored risk. And had I been able to control my optimism, had I, before I put money in or before I did something, had I been able to to think through what are the assumptions I'm making that may or may not be accurate, had I been able to look around and ask the question, what could go wrong? Is, is there anything here that, that could bite me really, really hard that that I'm simply ignoring because I am so emotional or so uh, I'm using my gut, um, my glands, 
to make what should be an intellectual decision. Most of the people that are listening to this have heard of a book that is an international bestseller, is 70 years old, it's sold 85 million copies worldwide, it's been translated into 150 languages. Most of us have heard of a book called Think and Grow Rich. Uh, Some of us have actually read that book. The name of the book is not Dim the Lights, Hold Hands, Burn Incense, Seeing Kumbaya and a Sack Full of Money is Going to Fall on Your Head. That's not the name of the book. The name of the book is not Use Your Emotion, Your Gut, and Your Glands and Do What You're Passionate About, and Then You're Going to Get Rich. The name of the book is Think, and they're right. Business and investing is an intellectual sport. And I learned this years ago. I was listening to probably one of the smartest, one of the smartest, best businessmen I've ever met. This is over 30 years ago. And he made a comment while I was in a meeting with him. Somebody asked him a question. He said, I don't know. Let me, let me, let me get back to you on when I can give you an answer. And he opened his little day timer. This is before blueberries and blackberries and crackberries. And he opened his little day timer and he made a little note and he looked at the guy in the meeting and he said, the next time I'm scheduled to think. And I I, I looked at him and I went, you must be kidding me. You scheduled time to think what a great idea. And so I picked up on that and, and I started looking at myself and I looked at other people I mean, if I ask you or ask the people on this call, look back at your diary, at your calendar over the last 12 months and count the number of entries in your diary where you set aside time to think. And I promise you that number is going to be zero. People don't set aside time to think. And so then they wonder why. There's all these gotcha and whack-a-mole and pin the tail on the donkey and reactionary drama going on in their life, and it's one thing. Nobody's bothered to sit down and think about, okay, where where am I making some assumptions that may not be true? Where am I I optimizing for the short term benefit as opposed to the long-term outcome that I really want. Mm-hmm. Where are some risks? That, I look at the deals that I've done that haven't turned out, and I promise you, in 90% of them, had I just thought about what could go wrong, mm-hmm. I could have identified it and avoided the dumb tax. But but no, I I had to ignore all those risks. I had to I had to be excessively optimistic, irrationally exuberant, and stick my money in or do something, and then I wind up with a mess. And, and the key, the key to getting rich is to avoid doing stupid things. It, it goes back to how much money would you have if, if I gave you the opportunity to unwind a dumb decision? Well, good. Let's just... I don't need to do more smart things. I need to do fewer stupid things. 
And yet when you talk to most people, they're gravitating towards how do I find the next new thing to do mm-hmm. as opposed to how do I find the thing that's dumb that I shouldn't do? Because the thing that's dumb is what costs me. And we, we do it with money. I mean, using money as an example, we do it with our health. We do it with our weight. We do it with our relationships. It's all over the place. We do dumb things and then sabotage the thing we say we want. And more often than not, it's because of, of an emotion, glandular response. And I'm not, I'm not arguing for robots and, and AI. I, I, I don't think that's what life is about. I'm not saying let's remove all the passion. Let's, uh, that's not it. I'm simply saying let's, let's have some amount of balance so that it's not all of one and none of the other. But right now, there, there seems to be a pretty good-sized vacuum on the thinking side, and hence why I think it's so important. You know, I know our lives, is just, they're just like strings of decisions, right? And, and where we end up all depends on these decisions we make. So really in your personal life then, what does that thinking, if you will, decision-making time look like for you? So the key to effective thinking is to start with a really, really high-quality question. So if you start with a high-quality question, you now have an opportunity to... um, to begin thinking and designing some choices. Uh, I, I think the best way to, to have a great um, choice is to have a lot of choices and then pick the best one. A, a, a great decision is simply a choice that either optimizes the outcome I want and minimizes the risk or maybe it leverages off of a core strength, or maybe it responds to a pain in the market. But, but I'm very attuned on a, business, on a business front. Now, if it's going to be a hobby, I don't have to worry about all that. But if it's going to be a business, I got to worry about all that. And and so as it relates to business kinds of decisions, I'm very focused on um, what's the question I need to ask myself that I can now sit down for 45 minutes. That's generally how long my thinking times are. I do it three times a week. I've done it for 30 years. That represents well over 10,000 hours wow. of thinking time. And I just sit at, with, a, with a high value question. Uh, the book I re- have recently written called The Road Less Stupid is, uh, is really based on a lot of this thinking time and some of the questions that I've used over the years in order to support me in making higher quality decisions. Uh, I, I, the problem is not that I'm incapable of doing it. It's that I generally, uh, unless I do thinking time, 
haven't allocated the time to really do it. I tell people all the time, Nelda, you can take away everything I own, take away all my skills and leave me only the tool of thinking time and I'll make it back. But I got to have that because it's the foundation of making wise decisions. Uh, uh, Maybe another way to say this is uh, smart people tend to have the right answers. Um, Wise people tend to learn from their mistakes. Geniuses tend to learn from the mistakes of others. Mm. And so what I want is an opportunity to ask myself a very insightful question and then be able to design some choices that will support me in getting the outcomes that I want. I'm going to read you real quick a, a quote from Warren Buffett, um, at, which I think is, is very, very insightful. And the quote is this. He says, I insist on a lot of time being spent thinking almost every day to just sit and think. That is very uncommon in American business. I read and think. So I do more reading and thinking and make less impulse decisions than most people in business. I do it because I like this kind of life. Ah. I think that's extraordinary. Yeah. You know, if you read Bill Gates, if you read about the Google boys, uh, uh, Michael Dell, every single one of them has a discipline of being able to sit quietly in a room and reflect. And the key is to have a really great question that will support you in that thinking time. Mm. Wonderful. Great advice. I also want to go somewhere else because you've said it several times in different ways, but in my recent interviews, Keith, I've had a lot of people say, um, we talk about the power of saying no. Mm. Now, saying no actually opens up opportunities. So what is your perspective on saying no? One of my mentors years and years ago said, Keith, if you want to grow, you got to learn to say no. No sets up the guardrails or the boundaries that allows me the opportunity to focus on the most important priorities. One of my jobs as a CEO is to set priorities for the organization. And, or if I don't have a company, I'm setting priorities for myself. The reason priorities are so important is because it dictates how I'm going to allocate resources. All of us are resource constrained. And the biggest constraint we have is our time. In fact, time is the only common denominator between me and Bill Gates. We both have 24 hours in a day. Nothing else in our lives is, is, resembles uh, each other other than we both have the same amount of time. And I think what differentiates successful people from mediocre people is how they choose 
to, to, to what they choose to prioritize and the boundaries they can put up that allows them to focus on the critical, tr the critical few versus the trivial many. So uh, I happen to think that, that um, for example, if what you want is to become great at something, become very successful at something, then the saboteur is probably trying to do too many things at once, to multitask, to have multiple streams of income, which is, again, I'm willing to be controversial, multiple streams of income is an unbelievably bad idea if you're focused on becoming financially successful. If you're focused on lifestyle, it's a great idea. But you look at the Forbes 400 and not one of those people got rich with multiple streams of income. They got rich because they said this, these are the boundaries. Now the problem with boundaries is that you're clear on what you're gonna say yes to, but in the process of saying yes to the stuff inside the boundaries, you're saying no to everything else. And I think saying no is not something that comes natural to most people. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, they wind up with a crowded calendar and, and they wind up with cr a cl a cloudy priorities and they wind up um, out of time. And the most important things don't get done. They get to the end of the day, the end of the week, they look back and they go, my God, I'm, I'm worn out. I'm tired. It wasn't that I wasn't busy. The problem was I wasn't productive. And so getting this distinction, I think, between productivity and, and, um, and being busy and, and, and saying no to the stuff that doesn't fit within your vision of excellence there's, there's a great quote. I got to give you another quote. I thought about this when I saw this question. Uh, you're, I think you're going to like this quote, it, it, and it's relatively short. It says this, the master in the art of living. Okay, that's a pretty good lead-in sentence. The master in the art of living makes little distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his information and his recreation, his love and his religion. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence at whatever he does, leaving others to decide whether he's working or playing. To him, he's always doing both. Wow. Now, the key to that whole thing, is clarity on my vision of excellence. That's the key to the whole thing. And once I get clarity on my vision of excellence, anything that fits within those guardrails, it becomes a priority. And the stuff that doesn't fit within those guardrails becomes a minor or a to-do or it simply gets eliminated because it's not supporting my vision of what I want. I think, I think the, the power of saying no is one of, the, it's one of the great powers and it's one of the hardest things to do. You know, it really is. And it, and it, 
is so freeing when you say it. I mean, in my world, I have, that's my experience, right? It's to say it. It's like, <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I get, Warren Buffett said this. Warren Buffett said, do you know the difference between very rich people and very, very, very rich people? Very, 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 very rich people say no to almost everything. And I think that's true, whether you're talking about money or you're talking about uh, relationships or you're talking about health or pick a part of your life. Uh, uh, there, there's, there's, I heard Nick Saban, who is a great football coach at Alabama and has won a number of national championships. And he, he, he was asked about um, the difficulty of coaching young men today with the millennial background. And Coach Saban said something that I think is remarkable. He said, the biggest problem with the young men we work with is they believe they have more choices than they actually do. He said, in reality, if you want great, there's very few choices. If you want mediocre, there's a million choices. But if you want to be national champions, there's very few choices. And at Alabama, we have very few choices. That's hard for some of our young men to understand. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't change the fact that it's true. And I think the same thing applies about this saying no. It's about, okay, what are the choices that I'm going to make? And the reality is, in order to, to embrace my vision of excellence, the truth is there's very few choices, which means I'm going to say no to almost everything. Mm. It's a powerful word. Yes, it is. I love it that you brought that up. <laughs> I've been interviewed a lot of times, and you're the first one to do that. So oh. nice job. Oh, yeah. Thank you. So, Keith? Let's talk about now mentorship. You have mentioned it several times, but I know it's very important to you. So let's, let's talk about mentorship. Okay. I think, I think another word for mentor is a guide mm. or an advisor or a coach. I think that having a guide or advisor or coach or a mentor is extraordinary because it is a, it's a way for me to avoid making mistakes. It's a way for me to stand on someone else's shoulders. I was very fortunate early, early in my career, in fact, just getting out of business school, I found two guys in Austin, Texas, uh, that were, that owned a business, and they, they needed a protege. 
and they they had a very rapidly growing business and these two gentlemen were very successful uh, business-wise financially they they were unbelievable teachers and uh and they offered me a job now the problem with the job that i was offered is that it was at a pay scale that was one-third of all my classmates so my classmates are you know, making a hundred and, and the job I was offered was 33, uh, not thousand. I'm just using the example. And so I was making one third of everybody else. And I was having a hard time making that trade until one of them looked at me. And, and as I was deciding to take the job and, and he looked at me and he said, Keith, here's how, here's what I'll promise you you'll make less than your classmates for the next two years and you will dwarf your classmates with the rest of your life. But you're going to have to show me for two years. And, and we were, and, and I did, and it turned out to be a great trade. They kept their end of the bargain. I kept my end of the bargain. And I, I promise you, I would not be where I am were it not for their influence and, um, and they're teaching. So I'm standing on their shoulders. I know they had mentors and coaches and they were standing on their shoulders. And I have other people today that are standing on my shoulders. And that's all part of the process is, you know, at some point you, 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 you recognize that there's an opportunity to let other people stand on your shoulders my light, you know, it's the old story of my candle doesn't burn less bright simply because I light your candle. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a competition. It's where's there an opportunity for, for me to have fulfillment. And what that's, that's really why I do the teaching and coaching and the mentoring and uh, that I do, which I do a lot of. Uh, but I do that because it's a, it's an opportunity for me to give back. I don't know if you have more on that uh, questions no, on that. I, I mean, I think know. mentors I just, are incredibly powerful. I just have always, and, and, uh, said, you know, one of the saying successful people make other people successful. I really believe that. I believe that, uh, it is part of that fulfillment that you're talking about as well. I think that, that life is not a competition, <laughs> that life, you know, and that unfortunately when we have that view, I think individuals who have the view that everything's a competition miss out so much on that ability to, um, to, to teach others to do uh, what they have learned. And I, I fear sometimes that our culture perhaps has lost, um, has, has lost the importance of mentors and mentorship and, and maybe doesn't value it as much as we should. I'm, um, and, and that, that bothers me. A loss of civility bothers me and a, and a loss of mentorship uh, bothers me. I think that it's something we really wholly need as our, our, our nation and our culture. I think it's something that our world needs, right, as our, as our mentors, you know, that, um, and the respect and the um, seeking out those is very important. And I think also being one is so very important. Um, so thank you for saying that. That kind of leads me into 
Keith, your, your uh, ironclad ethics, and we're going to put a, a pointer to that in the show notes uh, audience so that you can get to that. But um, let's talk about that because ethics and guidelines have been very important to you and you developed a list. Could you just take us through, you know, why you did it, what's important about that to you and maybe a few of those, those ethics themselves. I will. Um, the way I'm choosing and the way it's evolved, I think maybe it chose me instead of me choosing it. Um, the way I'm engaging in the teaching world is very much through a seminar kind of, of approach. Um, I've done mentoring and guiding and coaching to individuals that work for me in the past. And I will tell you, just as an aside, Nelda, that the people that have been, I think the mistake that people make when they are looking for a mentor is they, they ask the wrong question. The question they ask is how can I find someone to mentor me, what's in it for me, as opposed to asking the question, what can I offer to someone so that they would want to guide me? Mm. And it, it, we tend to look at it from the lens of what's in it for me, as opposed to Wait a minute, what's in it for the guide? What's in it for the mentor? What, what do they need and how do I become valuable to them? As opposed to what do I need and how do they become valuable to me? It's, it reverses the whole conversation. So uh, as it relates to my, my ironclad ethics and rules, I'm, I'm engaging in seminars and and the seminar world, as you may or may not know, is filled up with more charlatans and scam, quick buck, uh, something for nothing. Take this $400 course, become a multimillionaire in two weeks, sitting in your bathrobe at your kitchen table. It, it is the scuzziest, scammiest race to the back of the room. There's only two left. The price used to be $467,000, but today and today only, it's a nickel, right? I mean, all of that craziness, and, and I find it repulsive. And yet, it's, it's, it's the world that I'm in. And I teach, and I coach, and I, I do work with Tony Robbins and a number of other people uh, around the world who see what I bring to the table, which is a business muscle, and most of them don't have that same muscle. And I'm pretty good at communicating what I know, and so as a result, I'm attractive in that arena. And so I decided early on, I do not want to get lumped in with everybody else. 
I, I, I'm going to teach 100% of every course I do. It's, mm. You're not going to think you're signing up for me and then I'm going to trot in five of my friends to, to guide you and coach you. You're, you're paying for me. You're going to get me. And that may not be what you want. In which event, don't sign up because I'm the guy. Um, I, I, I will not raise money out of the room. Uh, because uh, if, as your guide, as as the person in front of the room, I have an, an a, a t- way too much influence. And if I say to a room full of people, a thousand people, look, I've got a deal I'm working on, and and you know, if somebody wants to put in five or ten thousand dollars, that you can be my partner. That that's inappropriate, and I should never ever do that. Um, I should never become partners. I should never finance any of our students. I've got plenty of capital. Uh, My biggest problem is I lack opportunity. But the instant you and I are partners in some form, I've now changed our relationship. And the relationship is unbalanced at the beginning because I'm the guru. Mm -hmm. I'm the teacher. I'm the wise old one. And I'm the silverback. You're the young one. And so I, I, don't, I want to avoid any sense of impropriety or I tell people all the time, if, if, I have, if I have to convince you to come and study with me, then I care more about your dreams than you do. Mm. And that's a prescription for disaster. Either you look at me and you see a resource that you think would be useful or you look at me and say, Whew, that guy may know something that I need to know, then, then good, come and study with me. And that's why I've designed the, 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 the coach, the, the, the programs and uh, the mentoring and the, the courses that I teach are all built around this idea of, uh, I, I, I tell people all the time, there's two kinds of hay. There's hay before it's been through the horse, and there's hay after it's been through the horse. And when you're coming to Keith, you're getting hay before it's been through the horse. And hay that's been hay that's before it's been through the horse is a little more expensive than hay after it's been through the horse. I tell people, look, I'm not teaching you a theory. I'm 70 years old. I've been in business for 50 years, and I've been paying attention the entire time. That's, that's why I've accumulated this muscle, uh, because there's lots of people 70 years old and haven't learned a thing. Mm-hmm. I've I, I built this huge muscle as a result of having done it, and I'm going to teach you what I do. And that's untrue for most people who teach. Most people who teach stock market investing make all their money from teaching stock market investing. If they were so good at stock market investing, why are they teaching? They don't eat their own cooking. And so I think it's critical that a teacher eat their own cooking and not be throwing up. And that's me. I, 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 do, what I, I do what I teach. This is built on 
having done it for 50 years, raised money. I've raised over a billion dollars. I've, I've bought companies. I've sold them. I've started them. I've torn them apart. I've run them. I, I've sat on the board. I, I've, I've been a venture capitalist. I've been private equity. I've, I know this stuff. Now, there's other stuff I don't know. And for that stuff, I need a teacher and a guide. Uh-huh. And so I'm gonna, I, I'll make a real important distinction, at least important to me. I think that a, that a guide and a coach, um, an advisor, a board of directors can rhyme with a mentor. I think that a lot of times we get wound up about needing a mentor, and certainly they're great if you can find them, but sometimes what's needed is simply somebody to offer me a mint when my breath stinks because I can't smell my own breath. I can't see my own swing. I don't know who Tiger Woods mentors were. I don't think there were any. I think there were a lot of coaches. He had coaches watching him swing. And as a result, he got really, really good. Because he had people around him to help him. And that's that, to me, is what we're looking for. How do we get people around us that can help? One of my ironclad rules is um, if somebody asked me to spell growth, I would spell it L-E-A-R-N. I think that one of my jobs as a mentor, one of my jobs as a guide, is to continue my own growth and my own development so that I'm working toward my vision of excellence. And, you know, I think we've all heard speakers who, whose stick hasn't changed in 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's the same. And it's because they, they found something that worked and they, never, they, they stopped growing. They got rich and they stopped growing. Um, and that's really not what I want to do. I want to continue to be a student. You know, in that vein, you said that humans are the only creatures who don't naturally reach their full potential. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I think because we're the only creatures who tell ourselves a story. Mm. I think most people's lives are dictated by one of two things, either the story they're telling themselves or the story they're telling others. It's the, it's the blind spot and the mask. And most people are wearing a mask out of uh, a fear or an insecurity or a unwillingness to make a mistake and unwillingness to look bad and unwillingness to, to be wrong. I tell people all the time, Nelda, it, you have a choice. You can be right or you can be rich. Pick one. But you cannot, you cannot pick both. And most people will, will gravitate towards right. They need to be right. And that's one of the things that's in the way. I, I, think, I think fear is an incredibly 
powerful force, but I think we're afraid of the wrong thing. I, I have a fear of stagnation. Mm. I have a fear of a lack of progress. I have a fear of never reaching my potential. I have a fear of being average. I have a fear of, 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 getting, of, of giving up or, or letting the people that I love down or letting myself down. I have a fear of dying without having made a dent. I love my fear but I'm afraid of mediocrity. I'm not afraid of making a mistake in pursuing my dreams. So when I look around the animal kingdom, I don't find any, but any other animal on the planet that is running their life based on some cockamamie story they've made up about, the, about themselves or a story they're trying to peddle to all of their fellow snails or lions or oak trees, right? I've never seen an oak tree get four feet tall and say, okay, I'm good, right? I mean, that didn't happen. But it happens with people all the time. They get in their comfort zone. They're pursuing the path of least resistance. Human beings are the only creatures that optimize for their comfort zone, who look for shortcuts, who look for the path of least resistance, who have learned helplessness. We're the only human being, we're the only creatures that do that. Yeah. So it's no wonder that we don't reach our full potential. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's another thing that, you know, to me, life is a portfolio and it just, for me has been ever changing. And I, I agree with you. I, you, I, I want to make the dent, right? I, I want to know that I've made a difference in this world. And, and I love interviewing and talking to people who are doing that. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's exhilarating. It, it, uh, uh, you know, your life and, and what you've learned is worth shining a light on. And I, I just appreciate you being here so much. I, I want the audience to know that um, you did write, the road less stupid, uh, which I know for certain you, you wrote for me. <laughs> I have made those business mistakes. Uh, and so I just thank you so much, Keith, for being here. I would, I would keep you if I could, uh, but I know you have other things to go do. Uh, but I, I just, um, the audience needs to get this book and you've really given us really such an insight into it already, but really and truly a uh, great book. Uh, thank you so much for it. And thank you, for giving back and thank you for your ethics and for sharing all of that today. I just appreciate you being here so much. It's such a pleasure. You're a wonderful huh. person. I look forward to meeting you in person. Someday. Yes, I can't wait. All right. Okay. Thank, thank you, you we'll so make much. A point for that. Thank you, Keith Cunningham. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> 